May the words I speak and the words we hear be your words of life to us, our God. Amen. So there's a lot going on today, a lot of things to commemorate. 30 years ago on Tuesday, Archbishop Brian Davis laid hands on me and ordained me and one other a priest in St John's Anglican Church in Fielding. So today we commemorate that, a grand occasion, a grand occasion for both of us who were ordained that day, a next step in my ministry. I've never been one to call that call, that ordination to the ministry. In fact, I kind of get slightly grumpy when people talk about how they were called to the ministry. We all have ministries. Baptism is where our ministries begin and out of which our ministries stem. Priests are no more important than anyone else, but we do have an important role in the life of the church. Around us, we are to gather communities. That is what we're here for. And so that ordination was an important step in my understanding of who I am as a priest. And it has been an amazing 30 years. It has been a privilege. And it's been very different from what I imagined it would be 30 years ago when Archbishop Brian laid his hands on me. I thought at that point that I would spend the next 30 years or 40 years or however long being a vicar of a parish. But almost immediately... uh, We went sideways into regional youth ministry, which I thought would be for three years, because, you know, that's all you did youth ministry for. That wasn't real ministry. Then I'd go back to being ministering as a vicar. But I kind of stayed there for 23 years. Kind of understood that that was actually real ministry, probably more important than being vicar of a parish. And so uh, I worked amongst those who worked with young people at a regional and national and international level for the next 23 years. Those experiences have led me to see what being a priest and what being a, or what being church is about in very different ways. Experiencing the Anglican Church on a worldwide basis and experiencing the Franciscan Order on a worldwide basis has led me to be in a different place from many of my fellow priests, which means they really have no idea what I'm talking about, And if we're honest, probably to many of you, but that's fine. The biggest thing that shapes how I see being a priest and what we are on about as church is that I am Franciscan. Twelve years ago, I was at Teze, the ecumenical community founded by Brother Roger in France, and... uh, each day there are presentations by one of the, one of the brothers, uh, usually in three languages, and that kind of captures everyone that's there, English, French, and German. And uh, then you put into groups that, where you discuss the presentations uh, and the questions they leave us with uh, around a language that most of you can speak. So ours was English, because that's the only one that I could speak. And in our group there was an OFM friar, so that's a... Catholic Franciscan friar uh, who was Portuguese but lived in Angola. And one day we were talking to somebody else and he said, oh, this is John and he is a Franciscan priest. And I objected. I went, no, 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 I'm an Anglican who's a priest and happens to be third order Franciscan. And he went, no, John, you're a Franciscan priest. 
And I had never described myself in that way before in my life. Sometimes we in the Third Order think of ourselves as the supporting act for the real Franciscans, you know, the ones who wear the brown robes, the brothers and sisters. But that brief introduction taught me and in some ways reminded me that we in the Third Order are the real thing. We can stand alongside the brown robe once. We don't have brown robes. This is our brown robe. This is as close to a brown robe as we get. This is our habit, this little cross here. But we are as Franciscan as any friar or sister. I was taught that day that being Franciscan is who I am. And I've realised on multiple occasions that being Franciscan helps you see the world in a very different way from lots of other, from lots of other people. I was part of a, uh, in, when I first did my Masters of Ministry down at Otago, I did a theological reflection paper, which meant we did lots of theological reflections. And just about at the end of every theological reflection, most of the group would be over there. That was where they got to on that reflection. And I'd be standing somewhere else going, I have no idea how you got to that point, but it's certainly not where I got to in this reflection. And I would think about it and go, I think being Franciscan has changed how I see the world. That, that my, I was taught that day that being Franciscan is who I am. That my calling to walk in the footsteps of Francis and Claire, who walked in the footsteps of Christ, shapes everything, including my being a priest. So what shaped Francis? I'll raise my eyebrows at this point. Here we go. <laughs> well, an initial call for Francis, we often talk about this as being the call for Francis, but it's really only one of several, was when he was praying before the crucifix, this crucifix in the dilapidated little church of San Damiano, just out of Assisi. So this is now a world-famous crucifix, the San Damiano crucifix, which is not actually in San Damiano anymore, it's in the Basilica of St. Clair. And as he prayed before this crucifix, Francis heard the crucified and risen Christ on that cross say to him, Francis, you see that my church is in disrepair. Rebuild my church. And he obeyed that call for the rest of his life. Initially, he thought it meant rebuilding the church, which his father wasn't super happy about because he went off and sold a bolt of cloth and tried to use that money uh, to rebuild the church with. Uh, which led to an irreparable separation between him and his father. And he did rebuild a number of churches on the outskirts of Assisi, San Damiano, which is just down out of the walls down the hill, and a number of others within the walls of Assisi. But he eventually came to understand that Christ's command to him to rebuild the church was much more than bricks and mortar. So he obeyed that call. But he wasn't so much into church growth or attracting people to come to church or making the church relevant. He didn't look at the registers to see how many people were attending. They actually didn't have registers in those days. He didn't know how many baptisms or confirmations had been performed in the last year. He just lived what he had found himself. He just lived love. Yeah, that one. 
In his testament, Francis said that his moment of conversion was not at San Damiano, but was a little earlier when he was still a troubled once playboy, riding along the Via Francesca, which was the main road running through Italy to France. Via Francesca. In fact, Francis's name actually was Giovanni, but his mother was French, and he loved all things French, including the French troubadours, and so his nickname was Little Frenchy, Francesco, and he is probably the only saint that is known by his nickname rather than his baptised name. So, uh, St. Francis, St. Little Frenchy. There you go. Uh, so he was riding along the Via Francesca, and on the Via Francesca was a leper hospital. Usually they weren't out on the road, but on this day there was a leper on the road. Someone he both deeply feared and loathed. Normally he would have stayed as far away from that leper as possible. But on this occasion he felt drawn to dismount, cross the road, and embrace this bewildered and diseased creature. Then kiss him and offer him arms. One version of the story says that as he rode off he looked back and saw not the leper, but the crucified and risen Christ standing where the leper had been. He would often return to that leper hospital and minister to the lepers, minister to the crucified and risen Christ he had encountered and continued to encounter in each one of those lepers. He learnt that day how to love and how to be loved. And he commanded all his early brothers to so minister in that leper hospital. Two years before he died, Francis was on retreat preparing for the feast of St. Michael's and All Angels. He is said to have prayed that he would be marked with the same depth of love that Christ had expressed and experienced as he hung on the cross dying. He was granted his prayer and he was marked with the stigmata, the marks of love. And for the rest of his life he carried the marks, those marks of love the wounds of Christ in his own flesh. Francis and Claire rebuilt the church of his day with love. Love for the least, the forgotten, the despised. Love for the powerful, the corrupt. And love for the ordinary people who struggled to survive day by day. On his deathbed, Francis said to his brothers, I have done what was mine to do. May Christ show you what is yours. My ministry as a priest is marked by this calling, living in response to what Christ has shown me is mine. I offered all of that in part because today marks a disconcerting milestone for me. 30 years. To be honest, it doesn't feel like 30 years. In fact, the last 10 years... It's gone a little too fast. Ten years ago, I wrote a reflection on being ordained 20 years ago, and I thought it was five years ago, so I was hunting through my blog trying to find it and going, where is it? And then I went, wait, I was still at the mount when that happened, so it's got to have been more than five years ago. It was probably ten, and yep, sure enough, it was ten years ago. Uh, so that was a little frightening that it was ten years ago we'd done that. Francis thought that all he had to do to rebuild the church was to live the gospel. As simple as that, 
Just live the gospel, literally. So when the gospel said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor, well, he did that, not that he had very much, because everything he had was his father's, so he just returned all his father's property to him and stood naked before the bishop. But some of his early brothers did exactly that, and they were wealthy and very influential people within Assisi, and they sold everything they had and gave it to the poor and joined him. And strangely, that worked. Francis never set out to set up a religious order. St. Dominic of the Order of Preachers, the Dominicans, was his contemporary, and they knew each other, and Dominic did set out to set up a new order. But Francis didn't. And when he had too many brothers, he realised he had to have a rule, so he just wrote down his favourite gospel passages and took those to the Pope, saying, here is my rule. And the Pope went... That's very nice, but you can't run a religious order on that. Go away and write a proper rule. So he had three more cracks at it, but really all he wanted to do was live those passages of the gospel. So when the gospel said, love God with all your heart and soul and mind and love your neighbour as yourself, well, he lived that out literally as well. And strangely, that works too. Now, which of those two sayings do you think is the hardest? going and selling everything you own and giving it to the poor, or loving God with all your heart and soul and mind and your neighbour as yourself. I think most of us would say, oh, well, selling everything that I have and giving to the poor. But I suspect the second is actually the hardest. Too often, we stop with, with the second one, Loving God. I mean, there are a couple of problems with the second one. And the first problem is that when we say it, we often stop with the first part of it. Love God above all else. I was amazed when I went on Google and uh, just put the passage in, as you can see up there. And uh, the huge percentage of images were about loving God above all else. The bit about the neighbour was just completely dropped. It was absent from those images. So when they read that, that was all about loving God above all else, which it is. But the problem with that is when we see it as just about loving God above all else, then we have discussions about what it means to love God, and then we have to be moral and upright and pure, and for a whole lot of Christians, straight, and all these other kind of confinements that we put on that, that then gives us permission to not love our neighbour because they don't fit that criteria. And our second problem with this saying is, well, who is my neighbour? Earlier this year, I accidentally commented on a discussion on Facebook that was begun by a colleague of mine, a South African, white South African, who works internationally and has a number of Christian friends in America who support Trump. So he, when Trump issued his travel ban put up this post saying, how can you justify this as Christians? So there was a lot of comment on that, and I foolishly got involved. And one of the people who replied to me, and I was assuming that nearly everyone who was involved in this discussion was A, white, and B, Christian, or said they were Christian. And one of the people said, we have a duty to protect our neighbours. We have a duty to protect our neighbours. I didn't say this to him, but I thought, 
you should read the parable of the Good Samaritan. Because the parable of the Good Samaritan was told in response to that question, Who is my neighbour? And Jesus said in his answer about the Good Samaritan, that the very people that Trump was trying to keep out of America were their neighbours. They were the ones that needed protection. The very people Francis learnt were his neighbour when he kissed the leper. If anyone had said to Francis before then, those lepers are your neighbours and you are to love them, he would have been sickened by that thought. But after that moment, he realised that everyone was his neighbour, even the Sultan of the Muslim armies that the Crusaders fought. Even he was his neighbour. This year marks, this Sunday also marks, the 500th anniversary of when Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the church doors and sparked the Reformation. He wasn't the first person who had tried this, but this time he was offered protection, mostly for political purposes, and his Reformation gained traction. And it would be fair to say that all hell broke loose. A lot of the Reformers weren't particularly nice people to those who opposed them. That would include Martin Luther. Both sides behaved, well, all sides behaved badly. <coughs> Some people have suggested that the church actually goes through these kind of ructions about every four or five hundred years. So after three or four hundred years, there was Constantine and then the church trying to work out how it became the glue that held the, the empire together. And after about a thousand years, there was the separation of the Greek-speaking Orthodox Church and the Latin-speaking Roman Catholic Church. And then there was the Reformation, and that brings us up to today. Today we are going through another upheaval as new forms of church emerge. And we, in the traditional church, are once again asked to reform ourselves. We are asked, what does it look like to reform some have said we should get rid of liturgy, and there are lots of Anglican churches now that don't use liturgy. They use other stuff. Some say, don't robe. It separates us from the people in our pews. And so even at the Mount, uh, Richard doesn't robe there. doesn't want anyone who comes in to take services for him to robe at St Mary's. Others say, let's just do messy church, which is kind of cool. And others talk about how we can be more relevant, whatever that means. But all of those are just finding ways of, survive, of helping the institutions survive. And I would say, from my experience of the international church, I would say, following Francis and Claire, I would say, because of my 30 years as a priest and all the strange things that I've done, that we should just follow Francis and Claire. That to be reformed means to learn once again to love. To love God with all our heart and soul and mind and body. And by loving all our neighbours as ourselves. How do we love God? By loving our neighbours as ourselves. All of them. Even the ones we feel most uncomfortable with. I put this up on Facebook and one of my friends said, 
I quite like those. I just feel very uncomfortable when I realise I have to put Trump on that list. <laughs> and I went, but that's where he belongs. <laughs> loving, loving our neighbour as ourselves is hard. But when we follow in the footsteps of Francis and Claire, and in doing so follow, walk in the footsteps of Christ, when we love as they loved, we will do what is ours to do. We will rebuild the church. So what does it mean for you to reform? What is yours to do? And who has helped you in your ministry and your understanding of what it means to be who you are and what churches so far? Invite us to spend a moment or two reflecting on those questions.